Hey, welcome back to the Pothole Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Joey. And I'm Adam. And hey, we're joined with a very special guest today, all the way from Oregon, Drew Dick. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I love the podcast. I love the name, especially. <laughs> yeah. Cool. We, well, we've been... It's, it's, it, we think it's funny. We've been called less nice names. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> yes, we uh, have. <laughs> I can't say on this Christian podcast, but it's, uh, yeah, no, we, we really enjoy it. So thank you for, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Well, I guess t- tonight for us, what time is it for you out there? Oh man. four oh eight. Wow. So it's just like bar- yeah. mid, yeah. mid afternoon. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And for you guys, it's what? It's after six. Yeah. After seven. After seven. After seven. Oh my goodness. Oh, you're East Coast. Yeah. 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 Somehow, oh, somehow we're East Coast, you know, like just right. barely. <laughs> like Indiana is kind of like that unwanted, like friend, you know, it's like, <laughs> wh- where do we put you? You know, you're not really in the West or it's like, we're yeah, kind of we're like East Coast. You can have them. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Drew, you are an editor at Moody Publishers. And you were the former former managing editor of Leadership Journal, and you've been featured in U.S. Today, The Huffington Post, Christianity Today, CNN.com, and you've written a couple books yourself, um, and your latest book being Your Future Self Will Thank You. And I, I love that title. Yeah. It's just <laughs> so evocative. You know, I'm like, even before I knew what it was about, I'm just like, I, I want to read that book because I want my future self to thank me. <laughs> Well, good. Then it had the desired effect. Right, exactly. I've, I've seen people have made a lot of jokes about it online, which I appreciate. Yeah, but yeah. It's like, you know, I'll have a picture of myself eating a burger or something. They'll be like, is your future self going to thank you for that? <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. That's too funny. Well, hey, Drew, we'll, uh, we'll kind of dive a little bit more into your um, biography here and kind of kind of get the, the audience to know a little bit more about you here in a second. But um, we wanted to start with some catch-up, so maybe we could start with you, Drew. What was your last week been like? Like, you know, what are some ups and downs, highs, lows, fun things, crazy things? Wow. Oh, man. Let me think. Well, first of all, I'm like totally sleep-deprived because I have a 10-month-old baby Ooh. Oh, wow. in, ad- in addition to two other kids, uh, and so she is still not sleeping through the night. So like last night, she'd cry, you know, probably three or four times. And then that would wake up our other kids that would run into the room. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's like getting beaten up by three people, but somehow <laughs> even more humiliating. Anyway, so yeah, my life right now is a crazy mixture of kids and work. Uh, it's all good. I haven't been traveling recently, so that's kind of nice. Just been hanging out with the fam. Uh, and actually, it's a bit of a relief for us to get out of summer because we had a ton of extended family coming through town and into the school year. So my two big kids go to school. And it just provides a little bit of rhythm, which I'm actually grateful for. Right, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to like, re- when you're an adult, you have to recover from summer. It used to be, it's just like you could chill out for a few months. Yeah. Yeah. Grateful for the fall. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I feel kind of similar as far as, you know, talking about recovering from the, from the summer because most of my wife and I's schedule for this last summer, um, we're, we're missionaries to a campus. So we raise our own financial support. And so that was basically our entire summer. And we are trying to do basically, you know, so they, they say roughly it takes six, seven, eight, maybe even upwards to a year normally for missionaries to raise their budget. Well, we were trying to do that May, June, July and be back in August. Wow. And we almost made it. We didn't quite get August, but we just finished up this week unofficially and we're waiting for stuff to come through and everything. So um, we've had a, cr- I think like, eight or 9,000 miles we drove this summer, just kind of going oh all over Indiana and traveling, meeting with people, stuff like that. So um, the summer, it's kind of nice to say goodbye to the summer and like, hello, school year, you know, because like, I feel very similar. I just needed a, a regular rhythm back. But on the plus side, I did get to uh, listen to a lot of podcasts. And so that's, the, that's kind of, it was like my kind of like, what would you say? Oh, I just, I just said there, there's the silver lining. Right. Yeah, okay, exactly. Let, let me ask you a question about raising support. Sure. Yeah. Because I know you always get up there and you're like, listen, we need prayer. And of course you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you ask for financial support as well. Right. Do you ever feel like saying, you know what? We got enough prayer. 
I, 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 now we need some more financial support. Yeah, you know the uh, the <laughs> that's not very spiritual. Right. Yeah, the unspiritual man in me says, "Yeah, we have plenty of prayer. We just need to have the money coming in to pay, you know, pay all our bills and feed us and stuff like that." But it's um it, on a serious note, though, it's really cool to see God's provision come oh, through yeah. and just just ways you can't even make up. You know, like if if I, I i i think back on all my experiences and i'm like man if i would write my own support raising story it'd be really boring you know it'd just be like <laughs> i'd show up you know a couple people would say yeah i'm getting on board and then like i'd travel and maybe within a month or so i'd be done but um it's been really cool to see god just provide in different ways and just i mean literally miraculous ways that you just can't even can't even imagine you know you're just like i never would have awesome. i never would have asked for that like i didn't even know to ask for that you know and things right. provided. So that's kind of been my update is like my big update is kind of like I'm celebrating because I'm pretty much I'm unofficially done. Everything has to catch up with the national office and everything that's pledged has to actually now come in. But um, as long as sure. that all as that clears within the month or so, we should be pretty good. Awesome. I love it. Such yeah. a valuable ministry too. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, Adam, what's been up with you? Um, I have been dog sitting for you for that's, your dog. That's true. <laughs> While they travel, I'm the uh, babysitter for the dog. <laughs> that's a big honor. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is fun. I've been doing that and um, really excited. I our church is doing a 5K fundraiser. Uh, we're trying to get a new church sign because it's really old. Um, and so I finally just got approved from the city to have the race. And you've been doing this for a couple of months now, right? Or yeah. City government is slow, as many know. <laughs> and so it's been a little bit of a, a slow go, but finally got it approved. So now I'm like, I got registration out there. Now it's like getting flyers made and putting out there and hopefully people actually sign up and come. <laughs> now, did you interact with anybody that was like Ron Swanson city government, you know? Not really. I did interact with the police officer. He was really nice, but he was just very like straightforward. But the funniest thing about him was, is that, I mean, he'd ask me information like, when's the race? You know, how many people, how many police cars do you need? And I'd tell him that and he'd write all this information down on a post-it note. And then he would give the post-it note to me. And I'm like, I don't need this information. Like, you need this <laughs> information. But uh, but we got it all done, so I'm glad. So that's a good thing. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Well, hey, that's uh, that's a pretty quick catch up. But we're gonna move into Midwestern moments. This is this is quickly becoming oh. our favorite <laughs> segment, just because of these stories that we're finding. I actually okay, so I didn't find a story. This story just happened to me. So listeners of the podcast would know that I have mentioned before that there is nobody that is more Midwestern than my wife. So she literally says, Ope, after everything. There's so many, there's so many times that I'll I'll run into her. She'll forget something in the house. She'll need to answer the door. Someone's there, you know, anything. Oh, there we go. You know, it's, and that's how she is. So tonight at dinner, we had a very Midwestern meal, brats on the grill in, in 90 degree humid heat, um, green beans and corn on the cob. But mm. as my wife would tell you, it is not just any corn on the cob. I, where, where's the place your family gets it? There's, there's like a local farmer in our old hometown that makes this sweet corn. And like once he brings the corn out, everybody gets it. It's that type of thing. Um, so yeah, it's just sweet corn. Yeah. Really. My, my wife's from a small town, uh, named Decatur, it's, it's just like, yeah, if there's something good in town, everybody knows about, you know, it's just like, that's the small town. There's like a Facebook page, legit. So somebody will post, hey, he's got his corn out on the side of the road. So the whole town then knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm telling you, this is the Midwestern moment to like trump all of them. Yeah. So it's all this corn. It's like treated this corn like royalty. But my wife proceeds to tell me, I, I'm very picky with my corn. You know, I'm I'm very picky, and it's like if you if it's if it's dark, if it's really yellow, you don't want that corn. You know that's not it's, it doesn't have flavor. It's not good. You want the white kernels that are really you know they don't have the color. That's where the good tasting corn is at. <laughs> and I'm just like I don't love corn. Like I'll eat it. Like I like it. I guess. But to me, it's just like I would choose so many other things to have <laughs> other than corn. But Man, you would you talk to my wife Hannah, and you you just would not think that there could be anything better than this corn. Right, and I I'm with you. I didn't know. I mean, in my mind, there are two kinds of corn. There's corn in the can, right, and then there's corn on the cob, right. <laughs> so I I don't have that refined a palate for corn, but 
Yeah, that's, she that's she very much has like a reformed theology when it comes to corn, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> so it's uh, that's my Midwestern moment. I mean, it, it happened right there in front of me tonight, right before I came here, and I'm like, I just can't pass this up. So, uh, Midwestern moment for me. I I kind of have one, I guess. I I was sitting in my office today, and I mentioned this in the past episode, but like the main business road where all the commercial businesses are. Um, it's right outside my window, so like there's traffic going by all the time. But I was sitting in my chair reading a book, and I look up, and there's this little red pickup truck carrying this huge like evergreen tree. It's like hanging out the back tailgate on top of the truck, and it's just going down the road like nothing's wrong. I'm like, that is totally Muncie. <laughs> Did I tell you the time that I saw somebody with a station wagon? And they had a riding mower strapped to the top of their car. A riding lawn. <laughs> yeah, a riding lawn mower. Not like the zero degree turn mower, the one with like the, the straight up steering wheel and the headlights. Like it was strapped to their station wagon oh going down the main road of Muncie. That's and I'm just like, right. what is going on? That's one Why? way to do it, I guess. Yeah, it's like, at the, and they were going slow enough because it was heavy traffic. I'm like, you could just be driving this lawnmower down you know it's like i'm sure you're destroying your car because that is not built for that (laughs) but drew i know you you're out in oregon so you're not in the midwest but you did spend some time in the midwest wondered if you had any any funny stories that just come to mind that you just can't pass up telling yeah i'm trying to think of things that are like quintessentially uh, Midwestern. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I lived in the Wheaton area for about mm-hmm. eight years. Um, and, uh, and that's the Midwest, right? I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It, yeah. Not as much as Indiana, but anyway, yeah. So <laughs> the weird thing about Wheaton, this is m- maybe more specific to Wheaton, but what was so bizarre to me, we'd go to dinner and you, you, you'd go to a restaurant and you'd be sitting there and there'd be like Christian music playing in the restaurant because oh. it's you know, like Wheaton is like the new Jerusalem. It's kind of like this <laughs> Christian city. Um, <laughs> and you know, you see people like bowing their heads to pray and it was, it was cool. I was like, wow, this is very different than other places I've lived. And this wasn't um, Chick-fil-A. But, but yeah, exactly. Then you go to Chick-fil-A and then, yeah, of course, then you're, then you're definitely in heaven. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, let, let me think. Okay. So as far as like a Midwest, well, the, the one that comes to mind is a painful one. So I remember like, Oh, this must've been like six years ago. There was a massive blizzard in the area. Just nuts. And the problem was it it like hit overnight. And the next day I had a speaking gig and I had like one speaking gig a year, maybe. So I really wanted to go to this thing and it was downtown Chicago. And so I come out and my little Toyota Corolla is like almost buried in snow, like literally up to the windows. And I spent three hours digging that sucker out. Wow. And I finally got it out. I get on the roads and I'm going like five miles an hour to get to the train station to go downtown Chicago. And then I get to the train station and of course it's closed. So all that digging for nothing, but (laughs) at least I burned a lot of calories and got it. (laughs) I grew up in Canada, so I'm kind of used to snow. Okay. And I remember like when I, when we moved to Chicago or the Chicago area, I remember saying to my wife, like, oh, these Americans don't know what a real winter is. It'll be fine. And no, I'm like, no, this is, this is bad. Well, then you, then you entered the Midwest and little did you know that our weather can be incredibly just chaotic. It can be, I I remember one time last year, um, you know, it's like people are going to think we're alcoholics because we always bring up beer references and (laughs) and we're assemblies of God pastors. So we can't, we can't drink, you know, but so you, you know, the, the phrase of someone's like, well, you can't do that. And then it's like the phrase, well, hold my beer. Like, you know, and it shows people do it. So I remember one time, right, exactly. And so one time the weather, I saw a meme from the Midwest that said, you can't have every weather you know, phenomenon in one week. And then it said, Indiana, hold my beer, you know, and that, within that week we had rain, sunshine, like high temperatures, like probably in the sixties or seventies yeah. at that time, snow. And I think a thunderstorm, yeah, like it, it was, was ridiculous. It was something like the same <laughs> week. And I'm like, this, this is the Midwest. This is, this is what our, no one understands what our life is like el- elsewhere in the country <laughs> than people who live in the Midwest. That's so true. true. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> okay well hey that's our midwestern moment oh. 
So we like to kind of blaze through those at, when we have guests on because we want the majority of our listeners to be able to hear our guests. So, you know, our listeners can hear us basically any other week that we don't have a guest for the whole time. So we want to spend most of our time uh, talking with Drew, talk about his experience of, um, you know, how he got into Moody Publishers, things like that. But um, Drew, why don't you take a moment just to kind of introduce yourself more formally, kind of, you know, get like if you want to uh, name off all your family, like kind of your experience in the middle, you know, anything that you feel is pertinent for listeners to know, um, you know, that you, you didn't, you denied the, you know, the blazers for a five-year contract so that you could spend more time on the gospel, you know, things like that. <laughs> hey, it's, it's all about sacrifice, right? Um, right. yeah. So, well, the big thing I already got out of the way, I'm Canadian, uh, originally, uh, grew up born and raised in Alberta, Canada. Uh, my dad was a Christian missionary Alliance pastor up there. Okay. So I definitely grew up in the church, PK, uh, moved down to the States in my early 20s, have lived all over the place, including LA, went to seminary down in LA, actually Pasadena, um, lived in Orlando for a stretch, uh, and then of course in the Midwest, and now have been out here in Portland, Oregon, actually just north of Portland, for just over four years. And I have an amazing wife, Grace, who's an American. That's why I'm still down here. I keep threatening to move her back to the promised land, but <laughs> haven't, haven't made good on that threat yet. <laughs> um, and uh, three kids. Uh, my my son is Athanasius. So if you, for people that have been to seminary, study church history, yeah. you'll get that reference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Strong name. Um, and then uh, my, my second uh, my daughter, uh, Mary, uh, that also has some theological significance. <laughs> um, but it's then, not so near as tense as... You know, the right. Fir- that's true. <laughs> Although I should tell you, I, I, they were having an argument at one point and my son said to my daughter, Athanasius said to Mary, he said, you need to listen to me. I was named after a very important Christian. And I was like, dude, are you sure you want to play that game, that card with Mary? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. You might lose that battle. That's amazing. So anyway, and then we have a, a baby just almost a year old, um, Sophia. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of my life. I work from home and, you know, even though Moody is located in Chicago, downtown Chicago, mm-hmm. um, they were kind enough to let me do my job remotely. So I fly out there every few months, but day to day I'm, I'm sitting here in my own home office and trying to keep my kids out of here and <laughs> <laughs> which is, fun. Yeah. yeah. So, so, that's, so that's yeah, I, I kind of wonder, so what is a typical day as, you know, a publisher or an editor, I guess you're an editor now with Moody. What does that look like? You know, from work, you know, working from home, what, what's kind of like your main roles, um, things that you really enjoy about it, maybe some difficulties. Yeah, no, it's um, well, it's a lot of emailing, like a lot of white collar jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew I was going to grow up to be a professional emailer, but that's essentially it. Uh, no, and then basically my job is to acquire books, and the beat that I have, kind of the the area I'm focused on, is church leaders. Okay. So I, I'm acquiring books and editing them that are for church leaders, not just like pastors, but all kinds of church leaders. Um, and usually, no surprise here, the books are written by other church leaders. Uh, and so it's fun. It's it's a great job because I get to hang out with people in ministry. Um, and I like to think of myself as kind of the second string ministry person who's creating resources for the people that are in the trenches. Yeah. Uh, and so it's an honor to get to do that every day. So yeah, I'm editing articles in meetings, talking to people on the phone. And then when I have, when I can uh, get a little time, I do my own projects. You know, I write some articles and, um, uh, write a book every few years, um, which is the wrong way to do it. I know uh, from a marketing standpoint, I've been told you're supposed to write a book every year or two. Uh, the way I do it is like every five years. So everyone except for my mom forgets I'm a writer. But, you know, that, that's what you do when you got a day job. It's funny because I think a lot of people think of people who write books as like, oh, they're sitting in a cabin somewhere cranking out a masterpiece. But most of us have day jobs and a busy family life and have to squeeze it in on the weekends and evenings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. What are, what's some unexpected things that you've been able to do with your job that maybe you didn't expect to, you know, be part of your life that, um, you know, maybe caught you by surprise, you know, that's like, Oh, I didn't expect that to be a reality or, you know, something that I would ever do, but. Yeah. Oh, man, that's a good question. I think just the whole thing has been a surprise because I never set out to be an editor. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had some kind of vague aspiration to write and, and, 
and be involved with words. Um, and you know, I did go to seminary and I, I, I didn't know what that was going to look like. I think like a lot of people, I had this sort of ambiguous calling to something ministry related. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, I think, I believe God is leading me, but from my perspective, sometimes it felt like I'm kind of stumbling into what I was doing. Um, and so in a way for me, it's been a little surprising, but in a good way, uh, because I'm a big believer in the, in the fact that God uses the medium of the written word to change people. I know he's done that with me. And so to get to play a part in that process, both as an editor and a, a person creating the, the content is a privilege. Yeah. Mm. What's like your favorite, uh, cause I'm sure like you edit obviously a ton of stuff from a ton of different people. Um, but is like there, is there one, like, I guess project or something that stands out to you that like really impacted you maybe more than some of the others? Oh man, you're going to get me in trouble. (laughs) 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 No, um, yeah, it's hard to say because all have been so meaningful in different ways. I know it sounds like a politician's answer. Uh, I'm working on one right now though, that I'm really enjoying. It's not out yet. So I won't say the names and titles and stuff, but it's basically about how leaders need to foster the, the fruit of the spirit in their own lives. Um, as well, of course, as the, in the lives of people they lead. And it's just been a really refreshing project to talk about and edit and read. Um, just a good reminder. Cause I think, especially when it comes to leaders, you can, you can have this, you can get to this place where you only open the Bible when you're teaching it. You mm-hmm. only pray when you're praying in public. <laughs> and when you do that, it can get really corrosive for your own soul because you're feeding everyone but yourself. Right. And so something like this is just a good reminder for leaders to really feed their soul, to not neglect that, that vertical relationship with God, even as you're pouring out into the lives of others. Yeah. Do you see like, I'm curious, like obviously you edit a lot. Do you see like a common topic or thread like pop up like in between different people or are they pretty vastly different topics? Yeah, it's kind of all over the place. You do certainly see trends in publishing. I think, you know, at our moment in time right now in the evangelical world, there's a live debate about the the, the place um, and function of social justice. Mm, so that yeah. that's a big theme right now. Um, some people kind of going, uh, fully into that. Some others going, Hey, just a minute. Is that really the gospel? And are we getting sidetracked? And so I think there's a need for a lot of thought and clarity around that topic, which is great. Um, so you do see these kind of trends sweep through the church, uh, which are always interesting. And I think the, the thing to do is to really, uh, part of what is really cool about my position is I get to be part of selecting the voices at least that are going to address those things, yeah. which I think is important. That's cool. Yeah. Drew, I was kind of wondering, you know, you, you brought up like, you know, one of the biggest debates right now is the place of social justice and, and the gospel and Christianity. And I think that's that's one of many hot button topics that are going around. Um, how, you know, from an editor standpoint, from a Christian, from a writer, you know, from someone who's kind of dealt with a lot of of different kind of mediums like that, is how do you think is the best way to engage each other in a conversation that's thoughtful and um, obviously there's going to be people that are going to land on either side of this, of these topics, these issues. Um, How can we, you know, be friends (laughs) and still be able to have a, like a civil conversation? Cause it seems like at least a lot of my experience with some of these hot button topics, whether it's social justice, whether it's LBGT, things, whether it's abortion, you know, you could just have a lot, a lot of these topics. If you're not with me, then you're against me kind of stance is a lot of like oh, yeah. the, you know, so how do we avoid that? You know what I mean? Like, how do we get past that? I think the best place to handle these things is on Twitter where you can just <laughs> stamp out your opinions and <laughs> lob grenades at the other side in 280 characters or less. I love it. Oh no, not probably not. Probably not. Yeah. And, and that's actually what's so lamentable is because the new public square is social media, right? Yeah. Um, it really is. And for better, or for worse, uh, and, and most of it's for worse, especially when it comes to the kind of uh, family discussions, shall we say, that we Christians are having. Um, and so this is where we hash things out on Facebook, on Twitter, about really important questions about theology, human sexuality, uh, how the church should run, um, leadership, all those things. And that, that's often too bad because what's actually rewarded by the algorithms that drive these sites is outrage and controversy Mm -hmm. and clicks and likes. 
Um, and often it's the white hot strongest emotions that get rewarded. And what these conversations actually call for is nuance and humility um, and, and I don't know, open-mindedness and kind of a honest exchange of ideas. And that often doesn't happen. So all to say, I think, I, you know, I, I, my pastor said recently, he was actually talking about the social justice issue. I think racism um, specifically. And he said, you know, don't, don't have these fights with other Christians online. Just don't like when it, when it kind of, you kind of come to an impasse, especially say, let's take this offline. Let's get together. It's not always possible, but if you can get together for coffee, you know, it's amazing to me how often people are so, you know, you get that digital courage, right? Because you can't, you're not facing the person and you just kind of come up with your zingers and your talking points. Then when you actually get together and you look each other in the eyeballs and you have to kind of catch up, how are your kids? Uh, how are you, how's your life? All that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden humanizes each other. And all of a sudden you, you, you focus on your commonalities more than your differences. You, you kind of give the other person a little more. Uh, credence to their argument and it's just much more fruitful sure. and so yeah I, I hate it when I do see the church getting hijacked into discussing things the way we discuss politics <laughs> um, which is equally destructive uh, but it's especially lamentable when you see it happening in the church so whenever possible even if it's just a phone call you know to, to hash something out discuss it in more detail but ideally face to face yeah do you have any recommendations on e- either pastors authors or books or some kind of um, resources that help that would help kind of navigate some of these waters that you've come across recently. Um, well, one comes to mind, and of course, I'm uh, a little biased because it's a Moody uh, book. Sure. But uh, "Redeeming How We Talk" mm-hmm. um, by AJ uh, Swoboda, and why can't I remember the name right now? Um, pulling it up right now. Okay. Oh yeah, Ken uh, Weitzma. Uh, he's a he's a friend of mine. Totally forgot that it was the two of them. <laughs> uh, anyway, I I do remember the book, and it's excellent. And it's you know the two of them kind of take teaming the topic back and forth. And it's quite appropriate that a book like this is written in conversation. Um, the subtitle is "Discover How Communication Fuels Our Growth, Shapes Our Relationships, and Changes Our Lives." Another one I'd recommend is by Dan White called Love Over Fear. And I think both of these are just like very timely books in this era when people are just, I, I think it's, it's a cliche now, but it's true. We're more polarized than ever. Um, and I think it's mainly animated by political divides in this country. Uh, but unfortunately, it's kind of seeped into every area of discourse. And we desperately need these kinds of wise um, books and resources that can help people talk to each other like humans again. Mm. Yeah. 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 I, I remember I th- I, it was some podcast I was listening to, but talked about how many of our issues that we talk about and we're trying to campaign for things like that. It's not, dr- it's not driven out of love and like being uh, redeemers of culture, you know, like everything that really Jesus and his kingdom inaugurates, it's driven out of fear of like, well, if this happens, then here's what's going to happen. Um, you know what I mean, and and I've noticed I've, I've noticed that become more and more as I you know I grew up in church, and um, I remember going to Bible school, and I I remember at first just feeling very confident about you know the the stances that I had on whatever, and as before I exited, you know I just started seeing the world more I think through true lenses and not not a biased lens, and and I started seeing those kind of things you know of um and it's, and it is lamentable as you said of just um, you know, driven we're like, we can't even show compassion and show right. love to our neighbors because we're afraid what our neighbors might actually do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it just didn't seem like that was what Jesus, like Jesus didn't really seem to care if people were terrorists or not, you know, like it didn't seem like he didn't care if they mm. were, you know, a Republican or a Democrat. Well, of course, of course there wasn't any in that, in that day, but, but you, you understand what I mean of like, he, he didn't yeah. allow fear to drive his ministry. It was love for the father, it was obedience to the plan of God. And yeah, you know, it's so true. And I think so often it depends on how you see your ideological enemies, right? Are they uh, enemies to be conquered or friends to be one? Um, you know, and even if you are, uh, of course you, we all have strong convictions and we should, especially as Christians, but if the, the attitude is, okay, those people are a big threat, 
We need to conquer them, beat them in the argument, you know, beat them with legislation. We need to win. Uh, that is a very different mentality than thinking, how can we persuade them? How can we love them over into our camp? Um, and, and that makes all the difference in the world, of course. And again, online um, discourse doesn't help this because, you know, you see all those YouTube clips about look at so-and-so destroys this person at the three minute mark. And, you know, it, it's just this kind of winner take all very adversarial uh, climate that it fosters. And it's really too bad, especially when you see Christians getting sucked into it. Right. Yeah. I've even noticed too, a lot of times, like when you're in an argument, like you want to win it, like you want to have that answer. But oftentimes too, I found it to be true that even like when you do have the answer, like, like you said, you have like that burn or whatever you want to call it it very much is almost unfulfilling and it never really changes the other person. Nor, never. You know, <laughs> and, and it just drives me crazy. It's like you do so much better with actually building a relationship with that person and showing them love and then you'd have a much better outcome and result than just trying to one-up them all the time. Right. So true. Like if you just think of yourself, like how many times have you changed your mind because someone just gave you an awesome zinger or a burn or you, you know, lost face in front of a whole p- bunch of people because someone made you look stupid. Right. I mean, that's yeah. not how people change yeah. <laughs> so just yeah. from a practical standpoint too. Um, yeah. Being, and just employing some kind of good manners too, like really trying to understand the other person's opinion, not straw manning them, you know, actually dealing with the full scope of their argument rather than just kind of taking the weakest part and pouncing on it. Um, so yeah, just some kind of common sense, decent manners in these kind of discussions would help a lot. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, Drew, you talked about people changing. And so that's a great segue into your book we're going to talk about here. So Drew's latest book, Your Future Self Will Thank You. Did I get that right? That, that, that's the title, right? And um, I, I had to I had to admit to Drew, I have not read this book yet. And I try to read something from all of our guests or, or if they're musicians listen to, you know, I try to be able to listen to all those. Drew, I haven't actually got to your book yet, but it is in the mail. It's going on to my read this year I'll show. I'll forgive you. I'll and forgive you. <laughs> Only because I'm a Christian though. Okay? Right. right. I'm biblically required to forgive you. And you'll probably, you'll probably post a zinger about me on Twitter after this anyway. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But um, yeah, so this, this book is all about, um, like like breaking habits and using the, the Bible and brain science to help to help with that, um, tell us a little bit of what inspired you to write that book and uh, why choose, you know, the title of, you know, using the Bible and brain science. It's um, obviously, I, I think I, we, we talked about this before the podcast coming from a more conservative side. A lot of times people are very skeptical when they hear the word science with faith. It's um, they, they don't know how to reconcile those things well. So, right. um, yeah, talk to that. Talk to that point a little bit. And yeah. Uh, well, first of all, you know, the, the reason I was attracted to the topic, I wish I could say it's because I have such amazing self-control and discipline. Um, and I just had to share my secrets with everyone. The truth <laughs> is kind of the opposite. I was actually drawn to the topic because I realized that I, I was weak in this area, that my self-control needed to grow. And it's not that I was out there doing something illegal or sinister, but just when it came to like basic spiritual disciplines, like reading my Bible consistently, uh, praying with any regularity, uh, or when it came to like how I ate, how little I exercised, all those things, right? I, I, I had a lot of high aspirations. I really wanted to do those things. And yet I found myself unable to do them. And I just had to conclude that really what the problem was, was a lack of self-control. So I actually started researching. I wasn't even thinking of writing a book. I was really kind of reading for myself, uh, for a while. I was like a few books in, and then I thought, you know what, maybe there's a book here. Uh, because obviously I think it's a perennial struggle for a lot of people uh, realizing that they don't have enough self-control. And of course, as Christians, it's not sort of an optional virtue. Uh, It's one of the fruit of the spirit, Galatians five. And so it's an integral part of the Christian life. In fact, I'd argue if you don't have self-control, if you're really deficient in this area, it's impossible to live a life of holiness Uh, because just about, you know, every, Everything, you know, from patience to honesty to faithfulness requires self-control. So, yeah, that's the importance of it and kind of why I tackled it. I also wanted to look, you know, first and foremost, I was looking at what Scripture had to say, reading some other Christian writers on the topic, of course, looking at the relevant passages in Scripture. But then I also, like you mentioned, I kind of looked at the brain science side. Um, I interviewed some 
psychologists, a couple sociologists, talked to a neuroscience guy. It was fascinating and just reading a lot of the literature on it. And I get it. Some people have been a little reluctant. They're like, whoa, just a minute. Okay, why do we need the science stuff um, when we're talking about self-control? And I don't want to overstate the case because I don't know if you need it because, you know, Christians for hundreds of years didn't have access to that kind of knowledge and they were able to live the Christian life. But for me, what was so fascinating is just looking at some of the science and seeing how well it complemented what scripture has to say. So for instance, one of the big early takeaways I had was reading about willpower. And about 20 years ago, there was this landmark study done that basically proved that willpower, that is the kind of like mental energy you need to exercise self-control, that willpower is a finite resource. In other words, it runs out, it, it gets depleted and it gets depleted pretty quickly. And as a Christian, I looked at that and I went, well, yeah, of course, this is exactly how scripture describes us as these finite, fallible, fallen creatures. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's why scripture commands us to flee temptation rather than stand and fight it. Because God knows that we're weak and we get weaker as we go. We might like to think that we can hold out against temptation indefinitely, but the truth is we get weaker. Um, and so just time and again, I saw things like that that were really interesting. I also think, you know, one of the kind of baseline principles I have is that all truth is God's truth, right? And he made our brains, he made our psychology. And so getting a better understanding of that can only help us. Um, and so it was just tremendously helpful for me too, especially when it came to like the science of habits, you know, how these patterns stick in our lives, you know, the three parts of a habit, all that kind of stuff was really helpful in looking at some of the bad habits I had and replacing them with good ones. Yeah. Yeah, I heard a uh, interesting. It was a tweet actually, um, but it's really helpful. I actually hang it, have it hanging up in my office. I'm sure Drew, maybe you've heard of this, but it's called Halt, and it's like an acronym. And basically, it says if you ever feel hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, don't make a big decision because your brain can't think logically. It can't really make a rational decision, and a lot of times. If I want to like, if I'm in one of those modes or all of them, I find it very true. Like, yeah, if I make a decision now, I'm going to regret it later. But is, is that something similar that you found like in your study of going through like how the brain works of like, yeah, we aren't in our right mind when we feel these types of things. Yeah, that's so good. Although that would basically rule out me making decisions about 80% of the time. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's actually a great, that's great advice because, um, you know, sci uh, scientists talk about um, hot states and cool states. And what they mean by that is when you're in a hot, like say you're in a cool state, usually when you wake up in the morning, once you're awake, you're in a cool state. So you think, okay, I'm going to eat well today, for instance, because you're not hungry yet. Mm. Well, then maybe you skip breakfast, you go to work, Later that day, all of a sudden, you pass the pizza in the workroom and it looks pretty good because now you're in a hot state. You're hungry and maybe you're a little irritated too because you've had a bad day at work. So that morning, you could have passed right by that pizza, but by the time you get hungry and irritable later in the afternoon, then you're incredibly vulnerable to giving in to that temptation. Um, and so the, the, the way to circumvent that a like you said don't make big decisions especially when you're in those states right because that's that's a bad idea and then second you do sort of you guard against bad decisions and temptation with pre-planning so you plan when you're in that cool state okay okay i'm not angry right now but i know that one person really triggers me when, when they talk to me so right now i'm going to decide how i'm going to react in that situation rather than just reacting off the cuff when i'm in the heat of the moment Right. And I love there's a there's um, uh, Starbucks has this kind of template that they have for their baristas on how to deal with cranky customers. So instead of just reacting to a cranky customer, they have this thing like when someone says this, I will say that. And so they have kind of a mental script that, mm -hmm. that kind of um, prevents them from reacting in a hostile way. And I think especially when there's an area in which, you know, you have problems, if it's lust, if it's eating too much, if it's whatever. It's really smart to back up when you're in the cool state, make your plans so that when you're in that hot state, you don't just give in to your impulses. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's just so fascinating because I can just like think back on areas of sin that I've struggled with over my life and, or even just times that I was upset with somebody, you know, just with that advice there, if I would have even just known that, <laughs> you know, of being like, man, when I was 
like in a good spot. I'm in a good mood. I'm not stressed out. Man, what would it have been like if I would have just thought about those circumstances and say, this is how I'm going to choose to act during this time? Because, I mean, that's essentially what we do anytime we choose to reach out to somebody, you know, with our faith mm-hmm. or we want to love them. We, you know, we're probably in, like you said, a cool state and we're not irritable at this person. We're not mad because if you're if you're if you're in that hot state, then you're not going to want to reach out. You don't love anybody at that point. You're just mad. But essentially the same thing, you know, you intentionally think about somebody or an area in your life and, and you follow through with it. Drew, I kind of, I wonder in in all your research and with your writing, have you found, what's the, maybe there isn't one thing, but what are some, maybe a couple of things that keep people from like implementing these things well? Like what's like, seems to be one of the most um, reoccurring things that keep people from making these these habits a reality or ch- or making those life changes. I think one of the things that gets in the way is how we think about the future. So um, there's another study. Interesting, they did brain scans on people, and they asked the the people to think about their future selves, right? Like a few months even down the road. And the interesting thing was their bra- brains behaved in the exact same way as they did when they were thinking about a stranger or someone else. So the takeaway basically is that we think about our future selves as if they're totally foreign people, not us at all. And in addition to that, we think of our future selves as rock stars. They're going to, they're going to get up and run every morning. They're going to read their Bible an hour a day. They're going to tackle all this stuff and and just kill it at work. (laughs) And then of course, when your future comes, you find that you're pretty much the same lazy, sinful person that you were three months ago. Um, and I don't know why that is exactly, but we tend to greatly overestimate how much we'll be able to accomplish, how strong we'll be against temptation, mm. probably partly because we're in that cool state. And so we think, oh, I'll just, I'll just ignore temptations. I'll breeze through that. And then we don't take the precautions and the planning necessary in order to do that. Mm. And then another thing is going back to the, the conversation about willpower, we let our willpower get depleted on us. And when we do that, then we're really vulnerable. I was talking to a group of pastors uh, recently and one of them talked about how he was part of this accountability group. And this one guy in the group said, it's the weirdest thing. When I fall prey to lust, he said, it's usually right after I've been at this like ministry conference speaking and, and teaching. And you'd think I'd be on this spiritual high and I'd be impervious to this sort of stuff, but it's always right after that, that it happens. And I think there's a spiritual component to this, but there's also a willpower one because when you're doing something, even if it's ministry, you're expending a tremendous amount of willpower ministering to people. Then you get done with that and you're actually depleted. Your willpower reserves are low. And that's when you're vulnerable to temptation. I think that's when, when Satan sidles up next to you too and whispers things in your ears and and kind of tempts you because he knows that you're, you're kind of weak. So I think just a lot of intentionality, knowing yourself, making sure you're getting replenished. This is why Sabbath is so important. You can't just keep going. I, like one of the things I say in the book is we're like cars. We tend to crash when we're moving at a high rate of speed. Uh, you need to slow down, get refreshed, be cons- conservative and realistic about how much willpower and restraint that you actually have, and then make plans for when you're in those tempting situations so you have a way out. Yeah. I wonder if... I mean, even in today's culture, there's so many people that are just go, go, go busy all the time. And I heard someone say once, if you don't take time to stop and actually let the thoughts in your mind that you're thinking kind of marinate and like decide through that, then you don't have time to like dissect all of it. And so I think a lot of people, when they can do that, is at the end of the day, when they lay down in bed, then their thoughts go crazy because they're not working, they're not doing anything. But by that time, you're tired, so then you can't make a rational decision. And then you just kind of, you go to bed, then you wake up and you start it all over again. It's like this never-ending cycle of of not dealing what's up in here in your head. And then you just, you feel stuck in a lot of ways. Man, that is so true. And I think it's actually a unique um, circumstance of our modern age because we have more noise than ever. We're continually inundated by our technological devices. You know, I've, the stats are insane, but we still like we watch 37 hours of, um, well, of, we're, we're looking at a screen 37 hours a week on average. And of course, we have our phones with us everywhere. And even when we have a moment of silence, not to bash on podcasts because we're on one, I think they're great, but you're either listening to podcasts or you're listening to music 
or a lecture or you're just constantly engaged and it doesn't give your brain the space to kind of have some solitude and quiet to hear from God, to process your thoughts. And I think one of the other things that gets, that gets uh, diminished by this is our ability to engage in spiritual disciplines because often they take deep focus, right? To read your Bible, to pray, man, when I was doing this, um, or writing the book, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was start to implement some new habits in my life. One of those was praying every morning. And I remember the first time I did that, I was like, okay, I'm just going to do 10 minutes. I'm going to set my timer on my phone. I'll get down on my knees like a weirdo in my office. Cause I work from home. I can do that. <laughs> um, and I remember I said it and I got down and started praying. And after a while I was like, Oh, whoops, I must've not set my timer properly. Cause it's been at least 20 minutes. I get up, it'd been seven and a half minutes. <laughs> I just wasn't used to, and it, that that's embarrassing to admit, um, praying for any length of time every day. Um, and I just found it doing so, so difficult because you just get shifting. You want to check your email, you want to check your social media feed, or you want to get on the phone or, you know, cause we're just distracted to death. So I think, uh, you know, this, this relates to self-control too, because it, it saps our willpower. So I think, especially for Christians, it's important to kind of draw some lines around the tech that we, we have. So I don't know what it looks like, like no phone after seven or one day a week, I'm disengaging from screens, something like that. My family does something we call no screen Sunday, which is just what it sounds like. Um, and we don't always do it. I'm usually the one who breaks it if we do. Uh, but man, when we pull it off, it's great. You know, I'm not on my phone. My kids aren't watching cartoons and we just get time, mental space to, to think and worship and, commune with each other and it's wonderful. And so I recommend every person, whatever those, those habits are uh, of just reigning in the tech and ste- stepping away for a season. Yeah. Drew, I think I, I think I listened to a different podcast. It may have been the Holy Post podcast when you were um, one of the times that you uh, were featured on talking about this book and you talked about how a lot of times people um, bite off more than they can chew. You know, so I remember, you know, like I stopped making resolutions a long time ago because at on New Year's because I just came to the realization of like, listen, by February, I'm done. It's just like I know, you know, that's just kind of how and maybe that's a terrible mindset to have. But I stopped um, doing that. But you talked about how oftentimes we maybe try to shift too fast or too abruptly. Um, what are some advice for people who are like, man, I want, I want to do what you're saying. I want to pray. I want to be someone who, like, you know, you hear these stories of like, you know, I spend two hours a day with God, you know, and that sounds incredible, but you're just like, I, it's really tough for me to spend like 10 minutes with God. I mean, honestly, you know, what, what's some advice that you have for someone to be able to maybe one day be able to build up to that? Right. And that's the key building up to it. Cause yeah, I grew up on stories of like, you know, missionaries that would pray two hours a day and like wear ruts in the floor with their knees. And, you know, I mean, all, all these amazing, like spiritual athletes that you're like, wow. And it's inspiring and demotivating at the same time. Cause you're like, man, that, that is no, <laughs> I'm nowhere near that. Um, and it goes back, you know, yeah, New Year's resolutions. The reason they don't work is the resolutions plural. Cause you've got mm. that limited pool of willpower. You, you set like five or six big goals and then you come and you're, you're trying to enact major behavioral change in multiple core areas of your life and you come into the new year and you've only got so much willpower and it just gets depleted and then you don't do any of them. And that's the cruel irony is that, that trying to do too much ensures that you won't make progress in any area. So what I advise is, is you just set one goal. You really can't do more than that. One goal or one new habit at a time and you get really incremental about it. So for instance, you know, if you want I want to start exercising every day. If you go, well, I'm going to go and run for an hour. Well, forget it. You're going to be sore for a week, especially if you're out of shape, right? Um, and then you're not going to do it the next day. Uh, and it's just, it's just too hard. And you will drain not only your physical energy, but your mental willpower. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it can be something as simple as like, I'm going to walk around the block once every day for the first week, right? And then you can kind of increase it because this gets into the habits, but a habit has three parts got a cue, a routine, and a reward. And so say you get up and you want to run. Well, maybe the, the cue is seeing your, your running shoes by the door. You throw them on, you go for the walk or the run, then you come back and you give yourself a little treat. Maybe it's a little bit of the TV or a piece of chocolate or something. The important thing is you're trying to cement in that habit by using the cue, the routine, that's the running, and then a reward, some sort of payoff. And then once you do that, even if you're 
excuse me. Even if you just, you know, it feels kind of silly because you're not really stretching yourself or challenging yourself. If you can persevere through the 30 or 60 day window of habit formation, it gets cemented into your life and now it's a routine. So the person who wakes up and runs 10 miles every day, they're not slapping themselves in the face going, oh man, I need to do this. I need to just, you know, get enough willpower. They just do it. It's a habit. It's automatic. And so when you get to that point, then you can slowly increase the amount you're doing. And that works with anything, running, prayer, even Bible reading, start small, do one thing and make it a habit in your life. And then once you've, once you've established that, you can move on to other areas where you want to make changes. Yeah. One thing I, I'm a youth pastor. One thing I tell my kids, and I think I experienced this growing up, I would be in a service or a church, and I think maybe a lot of people feel this. I don't know. I know I did. But you hear the pastor give, like challenging you on something, and you're like, oh, yeah, I really need to do that. But it sounds really hard you know, to actually live it out. And you leave walking away thinking, man, how am I going to do that? And I think we get in that mindset, and we forget, well, wait a second. It's not all on me because I can't do it. I have to lean on the Holy Spirit in order right. to like accomplish this. And I think, I'll, I don't know, Drew, do you think a lot of people get too in mindset like, I have to do this, I have to accomplish this, when really like on our own strength, we can't. Yeah, and I'm glad you went there because that's a huge part of this discussion. It's not about just pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think if that's the view of self-control, especially from a Christian perspective, we've missed the boat. Because even if you manage to do that and say you manage to change your behavior and, and avoid more sin, well, then you're just going to get proud and, and judgmental and <laughs> then you're, you're not exercising self-control at all. Um, and I think that's absolutely true there. I mean, back to Galatians five, it's a fruit of the spirit, right? Yeah. It's not something that we just produce in our own lives. Uh, Paul's using a metaphor there in the same way that a plant or a tree has to be connected to the ground in order to produce fruit. We have to be connected to God in order to see this fruit grow in our lives. And so the number one thing that we can do when it comes to developing self-control is, is nurturing that vertical connection with God and making sure that we're being nourished that way. Um, and it's interesting too, again, with the, the, the literature on this topic shows that things like prayer and meditation, um, that they're what researchers call keystone habits. That is, they're not only beneficial in and of themselves, but they actually exert a positive influence across the spectrum of your life. So for instance, if you pray just five or 10 minutes a day, you will not only have the benefits of prayer, which of course as Christians is to commune with God, but you will be more productive at work you'll eat better. All of these things have been borne out by research. It's really fascinating. Um, and as a Christian, we know we can't live the Christian life alone. It's too hard. I mean, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> it's like, yikes, how do you do that on your own power? It doesn't matter how much willpower you have. You can't love your enemies. You can't resist even thoughts of lust. That takes God's spirit to empower you. Right. And I'm just fascinated how all throughout scripture, there are all these passages, like even, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, it sounds like that's all on you. Okay, I got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But the next verse is like, for it is God who works in you, right? right? Mm-hmm. So that, that divine empowerment, it, it's never just you climbing the mountain by yourself. It's God coming alongside you by his spirit and empowering you. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I think that the opposite error is to kind of have a let go and let God mentality where you just go, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure cruise to holiness and I can just sit back and relax. Well, I think that's an inaccurate way to think about it, too, because we're told to strive for godliness, to run the race, to right. fight the fight. All yeah. those metaphors that you see in the New Testament about the Christian life, it, it's, it's hard. It's right. a battle. You have to kill the flesh, but it's all by the power of God. And so you, got, you need both, both sides of that, I think. Yeah. Drew, I kind of wonder, and, and I'm even, I'm even I, I step into this topic with, with, with much caution and reverence, but... Um, you know, with, with the passing of Jared Wilson, is that, is that his name? That's and, right. Yeah. And I just wonder, you know, not obviously, I'm not saying this is, because this is such a, a complex topic. It's not just, if he would have done this, this would have been, you know what I mean? Nothing like that. But do you think that even some of this like self-control even speaks to areas of depression and anxiety and things that lead you know, because obviously that that's part of your brain science too. You know, like where does right. depression and anxiety fit into all of this, and how can some of these habits that you're recommending help fight against those things? Yeah, no, and you're right; it is a complex 
issue for sure. Man, that was a gut punch when I uh, saw the news about Jared um, taking his life. Um, And we weren't close. We had talked on the phone a couple times, exchanged some emails here and there, so I did know him. Um, But it's just crazy. A guy who had so much impact for the kingdom, um, and just by all external, you know, circumstances, had so much to live for. Um, And yet, of course, mental illness is not rational. Um, and you know, one of the studies I, I read, this is actually after writing the book, so I didn't really talk about it, but it talked about illnesses, uh, chronic illnesses, pain, things like that, that actually diminish your self-control. Mm. Um, and so I think when, when someone's dealing with constant anxiety, depression, uh, that, that, that is a massive tax on your willpower. Mm. Uh, so we need to be compassionate when we, when we think of people that struggle with mental illness. Um, and of course, yeah, it's so different in every circumstance. Yes. Uh, we need to fight against those things, you know, as, as best we can. Uh, and at the same time, not, you know, ruling out medication, right. uh, counseling, that kind of help. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's incredibly sad and it just, yeah, again, shows that our natures are fallen. We live in a fallen world. Uh, we're not exempt from the kind of suffering, uh, that, that goes around even when we place our faith in Christ. Um, and that was one of the, the cruel ironies of, of Jared's life is that he was an advocate for these things, right. um, encouraging others and, and yet in the end, uh, wasn't able to escape his own struggle. So yeah, I'm just, man, I'm really praying for his family. Yeah, and absolutely. again, and then another thing about that shows me that a lot of people think that leaders are exempt somehow from these struggles, right. uh, but often actually they can be the most vulnerable. Well, I mean, even I think something that was encouraging to me, and and obviously I mean, it might be a little bit to your expense, but when you were talking about your struggles of prayer and you know reading your Bible consistently and doing these things, like it kind of encouraged me a little bit because you know here's like a editor for Moody <laughs> Publishing, everything you know like that, and you sometimes you know, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast before with other guests, but we almost get this fallacy in our head that Christians who are in high levels of influence or even some that are, you know, on stage on, on in front of thousands who are maybe even borderline celebrities, if you'd want to refer to them that way. And right. uh, Drew, I know you're, you're borderline celebrity yourself, but oh, I'm, you know, I'm not borderline. I'm just a celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, but, you know, just kind of like that fallacy of thinking that, man, if I could just be like them, life would be great. And, and I think you're, you're exactly right. Jared's like the life shows that, um, and, and I don't, and I don't doubt his faith at all. You know, I don't doubt his right. faith or or his belief in God or anything. But just that leaders are humans too. You know, and yeah. I think it's it's just like sometimes we we forget that, and we even treat our leaders like like less than human. You know, less than yep. you know, we treat them like superhuman, and that's almost just as maybe not just as bad, but it's can be des- just as des- detrimental as treating somebody then less than human, you know, like, and treating them yeah. more than human, you know Especially what I mean? To them. Yeah. No, it's bad. It's bad for the people that are looking up to them. It's bad for them. Creates unrealistic expectations. And I, I understand why it happens. I think one of the biggest myths is that if someone can preach or if they can sing real well, that somehow they're more spiritual. Right? Yeah. Right. Uh, but those, those gifts um, come pretty independent of um, our levels of sanctification or even when talking about the mental illness thing, you know, we think that because they're a talented communicator, say, that means that they're stronger somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just know that isn't true. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that, that's so true. It's, it's a good reminder that we really need to ultimately look to Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. as, as cliche as that sounds, and not to human leaders that are weak, that are sinful, that are prone to failure. Um, yeah, that we can't place our faith in them for sure. Yeah. I think some of the most powerful moments in church is when I see like the pastor or somebody like go through or like choose to like kneel down and say, Hey, I've done this. I think our pastor did he, something happened and he like confessed in front of the sanctuary. It wasn't like big, but it was just kind of took like, wow, you look up to him, but yet it reminds you he's just like the rest of us going through a lot of stuff. We only see him or the congregation only sees him on Sunday morning when he's kind of doing what right. he needs to do. And you forget that he's like anybody else. He goes to the grocery store. He, he does all the things and, and gets in conflict with other things. And um, it's easy to kind of forget they're human too. Absolutely. Yep. Place him on a pedestal. 
which again, doesn't do any favors to the leader or to us. Um, of course, yeah, you want to have respect for them. And I think actually when you see a leader being humble like that and transparent, um, it just increases your respect for them because then you realize they're not, you know, putting anything on and trying to look like a super saint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Drew, I, something I love about this whole topic and this book, and I'm actually very excited. I'm actually bummed. I ordered it tonight and it won't get here until Saturday, which of course is a total first world problem. But, um, you know, I'm, cause I, I'm really interested. I want to start reading this book because I, what, something that I've kind of been learning a lot more here in the last few years of the, how the Christian faith is a holistic faith and it encompasses mm. all of our life. And so I, what I love about this and what you've done here with this book is bring another facet, you know, it's kind of like you shine light into a diamond and you get, you get all these different gleams coming in different directions. And I think that our faith is often like that. And if we just focus on one little facet, we can be really malnourished in our spirituality. So I love that this topic talks like brain science and habits and, um, I just think that so many people, myself included, can just really benefit from this. So thank you for being here with us and sharing about the book. Thank you for taking the time to research and write that book. And yeah. um, even though of you're a celebrity course. and it's hard yeah, to get yeah, a hold no, of you. It's incredible. I like to stay in touch with the masses. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, unfortunately, I'm only famous in my own mind, as it turns out. But yes, no, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been a fun conversation. Yeah. I uh, love the podcast. I'll be listening to, well, this episode and future ones, and uh, appreciate you guys taking the time. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much. Well, hey, we have one more segment, Drew, if you have a few more minutes to be able to... I do. So what we do here in this last segment uh, is called Muncie Minute. And so during this Muncie Minute, what we will do is we are going to give our recommendation to something in this area that's within a 20 to 25 mile radius or so of Muncie. Obviously, Drew is far beyond that scope <laughs> of 20 to 25 miles. So he is able to... You, Drew, you, we'll give you the option. You could give us something, or you could even do both if you'd like. You could give us something in the Portland, Oregon area... Or you could get, okay. Yeah. I was going to say, or you could give something from your Midwest time in Chicago. Cause we do have some listeners in the Chicago area, but, um, so I guess I can start my Muncie minute is the Yorktown disc golf course. Oh, that's a so good one. Disc golf is something I have picked up in these last couple of years and I'm far better at that than I am golf. Now, please understand that does not mean I'm good at disc golf. I'm just better than regular golf. And it's a whole lot cheaper. So on a, on a missionary budget, it's much easier on the pocketbook to go disc golfing than it is regular golf. So Yorktown is really great. It's well taken care of. So sometimes mm. you go to these courses and they haven't mowed in like a month and a half. And there's shrubs growing over the, you know, everything. It's just terrible. This is really, really well maintained. There's a league that plays weekly there. Um, It's just, it's, it's a good intermediate course. So it's not easy, but it's not super difficult. So there's some difficult holes, but then there's some easy holes. It's a really good beginner hole. It plays real quick. So if you are a disc golf person, check out Yorktown, Indiana. So it's right next to Muncie. And um, I think it's called, it's something, the Lions Club. If you have, so for those of you who are disc golfers, you might already know about this app. It's called UDisc. And it shows you literally all the disc golf courses in your given area on a map. It's really nice. So just look up for the Yorktown one. I think it's the Carl Scott Lions Club or something. It's you can't you can't miss it. There's not that many around here. <laughs> yeah. Mine is a restaurant because I love to eat. I may not look it, but I do love to eat. <laughs> um, but it's a Mexican restaurant I call I always butcher it. It's Preta. Puertas. Puertas. I, I can never... Every time I go... Well, I, I've gone enough that like I know what I order so I can pronounce it. But if I try something new, like I don't know how to pronounce it. So I just like, I'll take this and like point to the point menu. Point to the menu. Exactly. The yeah. Yep. But um, chips and salsa are really good. I always get their enchilada supreme, which is like four burritos. And like each burrito has a different meat in it. And it's like... oh. The afterwards, after eating, is not always the best, <laughs> but um, the meal is usually really good, so I recommend it. Yeah. Awesome. Man, I'm getting hungry. Okay, so I'm going to give a Portland one. It's pretty obvious if you know Portland, but Powell's City of Books. Mm-hmm. Amazing. It is, I think, what's the claim to fame they have? The biggest 
new and used bookstore. So combining new and used books in the world. Wow. So it's an entire city block of the, this thing occupies an entire city block. It's like four levels. Uh, it's awesome because you can get a lot of cheap books in there too. You can spend an entire day if you're a book nerd like me in there, uh, just camping out. I used to live, when I first moved out of the States in my early 20s, I lived three blocks from Powell's. And I'd go there like every day and I'd, I'd read a book and I was, I was too poor to buy it. So I'd like put a little bookmark in and hide it back in the stacks of books <laughs> and come back the next day and read a little more. Uh, it was like my second home. So yeah, you, if you come to Portland, you gotta hit Powell's. It is the best bookstore on earth. That sounds incredible. That's cool. Yeah. I, th- that was something that I did all through my traveling this summer when I was uh, traveling, speaking about the ministry here at the campus, I would always um, routinely look up, are there any bookstores in the area, you know, cause I'm especially like a half price books or something that's like, right. you know, you can f- get stuff that's cheaper, you know? So I was always looking for that, but man, I, I mean, I already wanted to go to Oregon anyway, because it's, be- it looks beautiful out in Oregon, but now I, I want to go, I want to go there. Now you got yeah. to yeah. I'll show you all the sites, including pals. Hey, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take it. But Hey Drew, if our listeners want to you know, connect with you, read more about you. I know it's more, you have more books than just the one that we talked about today. Uh, Want to read some of your work. I know you have a, even a blog, I, I believe that you, that you post on uh, periodically and everything. What's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, well, they can go to my website. It's just my name, Drew Dick and Dick is D-Y-C-K. So it's a little confusing. Because you're a uh, Christian. com. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and they can yeah, read some some excerpts of my books and the blog, which is, hasn't been updated in a while, but whatever. Um, see some cheesy pictures of me and my family on there. Um, and so that's a good way to connect with me. Also, even after I've bashed on social media a lot in this episode, uh, I am on Twitter too much. And my handle is just my name again, Drew Dick. Uh, always good to connect there. Or if you're in the Northwest, stop by and say hello. Man, Sweet. I will say you probably are one of the most entertaining people I have on my Twitter feed. Like I think I probably between your posts, I probably like and retweet your stuff more than anybody because it's just it's just funny and just and thank so. you, thank you. I needed that too because my wife doesn't think it's funny; she doesn't like it. <laughs> Talks about my dumb jokes, and I, and she's not on Twitter, so I have to read her my tweets, which which is pretty pathetic. But so I, I appreciate that. That's awesome. <laughs> well, hey Drew, thank you again so much for being here with us. It's been a pleasure to get to talk to you, and maybe yeah. later down the road when you write your next best-selling book, maybe we can have you back onto the podcast again. It's a deal. Absolutely. It's a deal. Let's let's schedule it. Hey everyone, this is Adam from the Pothole Pastured Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like what you hear on this episode, please leave a review, leave a comment. We would love to hear your thoughts and to get the word out to folks just like you who would enjoy this type of podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of the Pothole Pastors Podcast.